The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17. And I think you probably gauge from the way I've spoken in the past, spoken in the past few weeks that the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 17 has just really been a, a wonderful study for me personally. As I've looked into the, the transfiguration of Christ, I mean, I've just really enjoyed this study and the many lessons that come out of it. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples up on that mountain, and one of the chief things that he showed them was the verification that their faith in him had been rightly placed. Jesus promised that he would come in glory, and then in a visual demonstration of that, he took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. And there in their presence, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining bright. The robe of his flesh was veiled back, and the glory of God was seen. Nobody has glory but God. And that was proof, absolute proof, that Jesus was God veiled in human flesh. So the transfiguration was really just a great uh, teaching tool for them, but it was also a great lesson for us because we that have placed our faith in Christ, we can see through this that Christ has promised that he would come back, that our faith is in him, there is a second coming, and Jesus, when he returns to this earth, is going to take all of us that are believers in him home to be in heaven with him. So this was just a a great experience for the disciples. It impacted them. Uh, Later it shows up in their preaching and it gave them just, again, a great teaching tool to show people about the second coming. So that was a wonderful experience. But it was a brief one. It was just a brief respite from all of these teachings that Jesus was given, giving on hardship, the difficulties of living a Christian life, what it would be like when they stepped out as disciples on their own. And, and they just had a little bit of time to rest from that as they got to see the glory of God. And Peter loved it. Peter wanted to stay on the mountain, but that wasn't the plan. Jesus had to go to the cross, and so all of them had to come down from the mountain. Well, we resume our study in verse number 14 at that point, and we see the difference between the mountain and the valley. That up above, everything is serene and peaceful and it's perfect, but down below, there are troubles and there are hardships and there is heartache. Now, you'll notice in the scriptures, if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's word, Matthew chapter 17, verse number 14. This is the first encounter after coming off the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. 
Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. And nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We ask you, Lord, that you would just show us this text today, and we pray that the truth of your word might shine forth from it. Help us as we preach the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you have been following some kind of a plan to read through the Bible this year? You started January, and you're going to read through the Bible. How many are doing that? Okay, a few of you, a few of you are doing that. I find that that's one of the favorite things that I have to do. For many, many years, I've made it a practice of starting at the beginning of the year and make sure that I'm going to read through the Bible in, the, in, in that entire year, that I would spend every day in the Word of God. So what I really like to do, I get up in the morning and I go sit at my kitchen table before everybody gets up and I, I sit there and I read the Word of God and I read a devotional and that's just one of my favorite things to do. But I'd encourage you that when you read the Word of God, take some time out to think about what you're reading. And I want you to look for one particular thing. I want you to look at how many times that things happened on top of mountains. How many times in the Bible that it talks about mountaintop experiences? Now, one of the most striking ones in the Bible, and one that's really one of my favorites, is found in Genesis chapter 22. And that's when Abraham went up on the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac. He went up there with the full intention that he would actually, in faith, offer his own son as a sacrifice. And just as Abraham was getting ready to raise the knife and to plunge it into Isaac, God spoke to him from heaven and said, Abraham, you don't need to do that. God had seen the faith of Abraham, and so instead he supplied a ram that was caught in the thicket, and that ram became the substitute for Isaac. Another great experience is in Exodus chapter 19. And we've talked about that in connection with the Mount of Transfiguration because that's where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and where he gave him all the plans for the worship in Israel. Another time that we talked about, also we spoke of in connection with the Transfiguration, and that's Elijah. That Elijah, up on the mountain, uh, prayed to God and God sent down fire from heaven and consumed his sacrifice. And then, of course, the transfiguration that we've just studied. When Jesus took the disciples up on the mountain and there was transfigured before them. That's just one of many instances, what you find in the Word of God, where significant uh, significant events happen on mountains. But after each of those mountaintop experiences, you'll also find this that the next thing that happens is usually something bad. Almost always the next thing that happens is something bad. When Abraham came down from the mountain, the first thing that happened was his wife Sarah died. When Moses came down from the mountain, you know what he experienced. He saw the children of Israel naked, dancing around a golden calf, defying the very God that he'd been up on the mountain to see. When Elijah came down from the mountain... 
there was Jezebel that met him, and she said that she was going to kill Elijah if she got her hands on him in the same manner that he'd killed her prophets. And this is what we often find. Jesus and the disciples came down from the mountain, and immediately they were confronted by the works of Satan. There was the demon possession of a young boy that was in the crowd. You know, it's great to be up on the mountain. There there are wonderful experiences on the mountain, but always after the mountain, there comes a valley. And you have to be as sure that as you are with Jesus on the mountain, that he's with you when you're down in the valley. And that's the way that Satan often works, and you know it to be true. After you've had a mountaintop experience with the Lord, Satan is almost invariably there to knock you down. When you've experienced a revival in your heart, something good is going on in your life, when you have a spiritual high, you can expect that Satan will be there to knock you off of that perch. And it's in those times that our faith is really put to the test. And that's when you really have to plug into the power of God. See, faith is the instrument that connects you to God's power. And that's why the Bible speaks so much about faith. Faith, in fact, is the number one subject that's talked about in the Bible. The Bible teaches that justification is by faith, or that we are made right with God by faith. It says that the just shall live by faith. And that's actually, there's actually a dual meaning in that, that we have been brought from spiritual death into spiritual life through faith. And then when we become the children of God, the way that we live our lives and the way that we're able to have strength for our lives is faith. Faith is what plugs us into the power source. Faith enables us to live for God and to conquer any sin that's in our life. Paul said, take the shield of faith. And he said with that, you'd be able to quench all the fiery darts of the devil. Now in this text, we're going to see what happens when faith is not right. We see what happens when we start to go through just mechanical processes. And the practice of our Christianity is not depending every single day upon the power of God. This is what happens when we start to mix our faith or when we start to lean on ourselves more than we do upon the power of God. And all of us are prone to do that. We get away from the Lord and we start thinking that all the victories that we have are our victories, not God's victories. And then when we do that, our faith begins to falter. And so we see here in this example what happens when a person, when a Christian, does not have a strong, consistent, dependent, working faith. So we're going to take a look at this story today and see what Matthew intends to teach us as he mentions here Jesus and this experience about faith. Now Peter wanted to stay on the mountain, but Jesus knew they were needed down in the valley. And so his disciples and Jesus, they went down from the mountain, and as they came down, they were greeted by a crowd of people, and in this crowd was one particular man, and he came to Jesus. Now would you notice him, because we're going to call him today the desperate dad. He is a desperate dad, and he is a picture of dependent faith. He came to Jesus with a desperate plea. He said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. Now in the 18th verse, we learn the affliction of this young man. The affliction is caused by a demon. 
and his father described him as a lunatic. Uh, The word actually means moonstruck. In those times, there was a lot of superstition about the moon. They believed that mental illnesses were caused by the moon. A lot of people think things like that today, and there's all kinds of stories about vampires and werewolves and things like that. And for all of you twilighters, you know that the moon plays a big part in all of that superstition. So these people had their superstitions about the moon. And so the father said about him, he's a lunatic, he's moonstruck. And then we also learn by reading the other gospels that this boy was deaf and dumb. He was afflicted by a demon and that demon would cause him to be thrown into the fire. The demon would cause him to be thrown into the water. And so he was always subject to physical harm because of the demon that was in him. A demon spirit, a foul spirit inhabited his his body. It was the work of Satan. And there's actually a lesson that ties in to what we've already talked about in the transfiguration of Christ. Now remember that the transfiguration is a foreshadowing that Jesus is coming back. It's a picture of Christ coming in his glory. And what does the Bible say? What, what does the word of God say will happen when Jesus returns? What is he going to find? Well, he's going to find a world that's in the throes of Satan. Before Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom, there will be a time of tribulation upon the earth. And during that time, there will be horrible demonic activity. And this is sort of a picture of that, that as Jesus came down from the mountain, when he comes, they'll find all of this demonic activity. Then there's also something here that talks about our own condition when we come to Christ, that we're bound in sin. And you may not know this. I don't think lost people know this, that Satan rules their lives, that they're held captive uh, by the God of this world, and nobody has the ability to free themselves from this God. The only one who's able to help us is Jesus Christ, and we must come to him. So he has to help us, and we have to depend upon him. There's no relief in the religion of the world. There's no relief in self. There's no relief in philosophy. There's no relief in science. The only way that any person is ever free from the shackles of sin is for Jesus to come and help them. So this man cried for Jesus' help. He knew what Jesus could do. He had a dependent faith. And that's always where it starts, folks. There always must be faith that Jesus can do what you ask him to do. Now, we notice, secondly, that there is another problem here. There's a problem of defective disciples. The disciples were defective in their faith, and they have a picture of deficient faith. The man said, I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Now that's an interesting dilemma. The other nine disciples did not go up on the mountain with Jesus. Apparently they continued to do ministry just like they had before. They were down in the valley. They continued to preach and they continued to heal people. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had given them the power to heal from all sorts of sicknesses and diseases. And particularly there in that 10th chapter, it says that he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out. So here are disciples that have been given this power by Jesus. They, they can work with demon possession. They cast out demons. But they came across a case that's too difficult for them. 
And I can imagine that each of the disciples had their turn. They couldn't understand why the other couldn't cast them out. So they took their turns in trying to cast the demon out of the boy. So perhaps Philip went up to him first and he pointed his finger at the young man and he said, I tell you, Satan, or I tell you, devil, come out of that young boy. And nothing happened. And Philip may have looked at his finger and said, well, is this thing loaded? I mean, what's the problem here? And then, he, then it goes to Thomas, then it goes to Matthew, then it goes to Andrew, and it goes one by one to all nine of those disciples, and all of them try to cast out the demon, and none of them can. And you have to imagine that the man had also been to the religious leaders. There were exorcists among them. There were Jews that said they could cast out demons, but they couldn't do anything either. And actually that becomes a source of ridicule for them because they denied the power of Christ. They denied the power of the, of the apostles. And they would say, well, your Christ is no better than us. He can't be the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. He doesn't have power. You don't have power through him. And so the attempts and the failures of the disciples brought reproach upon the name of the Lord. Why? Because, as we'll see later, they didn't have the faith that was required to do this. Now I'd like for us to pause for just a moment right here and see that the disciples should have had power to do it. They had been granted the power to do this. But they were as helpless as those that were around them. They were defeated. Satan was still in control of the young boy. And as you look at Christianity today, and even look in our own church, do you see the same kind of thing? That God's people have been promised victory over Satan. We promise that we have all the power that we ever need for success in our Christian lives. And yet, we look at our people and we see the evidence that Satan is still controlling the people of God. And there are many of God's people that are living in weakness and failure. And even though I, I preach to you about holiness and about consecration and about dedication to the things of God, some of you still go on doing the same things that you always did. You don't respond to the preaching of the word. And what's the result of that? The world doesn't see any difference in you. Christianity has had no effect upon you. There is no witness for Christ. And so instead of living a life of holiness and being an example for Christ and being one that can tell friends who are lost that you really need to come to Christ, that he will save you from your sins, that instead we find our own Christian people advising sinners in their sins. Oh, you want to know what kind of liquor to drink? Talk to me. I can show you what you can drink. I can show you the best kinds. You want to do this sin or you want to do that? Or you want to get involved in something else? I can show you where to go. I can show you the nightclubs. I can show you the places where can, people can go and have a great time. What kind of influence do you think that is on the lost of the world? It's a shameful failure for Christians not to have the power of God in them because they're not living by the faith of Jesus Christ. So the world sees no difference at all. So is there any wonder when Christ comes back that he said, will he find faith on this earth? Will he find failure on the earth? What do you expect? He came back and he found his own disciples powerless because they didn't live in the faith that he gave them. 
Now the apostle John wrote, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And here's a question for all of us, folks. When Jesus comes down from that mountain, will you be ashamed? Will you be ashamed of what you are when Jesus comes down from the mountain? And are you going to be powerless in your Christian life when Jesus has previously promised you that you could have power over the works of Satan? Is that the way you're going to be? The Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Jesus said again, will the Son of Man find faith? When he comes back, will he find faith? Well, the disciples couldn't cast out the demons. They should have had the power. And why couldn't they? Jesus cast him out. And so you can well imagine they had the very same question. And so they came to him and they said, Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast them out? And notice the answer that Jesus gave. Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. And there's the answer. Because of your unbelief, there was no faith. Now, do you see what's going on here? The disciples were used to healing diseases. They were used to casting out demons. Whenever Jesus was around, they could do these things. They were speaking the words and they were giving the commands as if Jesus Christ himself had spoken them. But you know what happened when he was gone? They got confused about who the power was or where the power came from. They got confused about who really has the ability to do this. And they started to trust in themselves. They were disconnected from the real power source. So they became mechanical in their actions. They weren't depending upon God. They were working in their own power, not connected to the power supply. So, in effect, we can say what they're trying to do is they're trying to do God's work without God. Do you think that we're ever guilty of that? Do you think that sometimes we're guilty of doing God's work without God? You know, sometimes can we just step back and ask ourselves about what we're doing? Is God in this? Is this what God wants? Are we doing God's work without Him? And you think about it, what if we completely removed God from our song service? And what if we completely removed him from our sermons? And if we removed God from our Sunday school classes, would they look any different than they do now? Would the children that come out and the adults that sit in here, would they be any different than they are now if we just removed God altogether? That's a real problem. It's a real problem when you're trying and acting like you're doing God's work, but God's not in it. God's nowhere to be found. It might be a good thing. It looks from the outside, but God has to be in it because he's the power supply. God's the one who, who, who the faith has to be connect to, connected to. And so when Jesus was with the disciples, there was nothing they couldn't do. And when he was gone, their faith slipped And Jesus said, you are men of little faith. He said that in chapter 6, verse number 30. Again in chapter 8, verse number 26. In the 14th chapter, verse 31. In the 16th chapter, verse 8. And all of that time, they were with Jesus and learning from him. And yet he had to keep telling them, you are men of little faith. And most of these times happen when he just left or he's just a little bit away, a little bit distant from them. Now, he's been teaching them, but he's a little bit distant. And now they can no longer do what they need to do. They have no faith. 
Now, what's the lesson that we can learn from this? Well, I think, for one, it shows us that our faith is really measured in the tough times rather than in the time of plenty. Peter said it's good to stay on the mountain. And faith is strong when you're up on the mountain. But what happens when you're not on the mountain any longer? What happens and how strong is your faith when you're down in the valley and God seems to be distant from you? Oh, it's easy to trust in God when the cupboard is full. It's easy to trust Him when there's money in the checking account. It's easy to trust God when you have all the reserves that you need in your savings. It's easy to trust Him when everything that you need is visible. But what happens when it's not? What happens to your faith then? And I think many of you know the answer. It's one of the reasons why I believe that we ran a deficit last year in our budget. This is the reason why you have people that you have to challenge in the attitude of gi- in the uh, in the uh, uh, act of giving. Uh, th- this is why many people don't tithe. They don't trust the God that they can't see. Now people will tithe when it's not a strain on them. But how many times have I heard I just cannot afford to tithe. I've heard that so many times. And do you understand that that response is no different than I cannot trust God and so I will not tithe. I cannot tithe. I cannot trust God. Those things go right together. So there are many people that are in the church that are people of little faith. They have trouble with selfishness. They, they can't see beyond the present circumstances. And so taking 10% of their income and giving it and then adding an offering on top of that, that's not something they're going to do. Why? Because they're people of little faith. Or perhaps people with no faith at all. And usually you'll find, well, they do give something. And thus we have giving amounts that come from families that are, if they were actual ties and you multiplied them by 10, these are people that should not be living in Roner Park, Katati, and Santa Rosa. They should be living in a homeless shelter compared to what their ties would, would multiply out with that. So what's the problem with it? Well, it can't be anything but unbelief. I mean, what else are you going to attribute that to? What can it be besides unbelief? Stubbornness and rebellion against it, that's still the same thing. That's still unbelief. And so thus, the word of God suffers. The work of the church, uh, the church has to scrimp by. Can't always turn the heat on when we want to. Can't keep the lights burning. Can't keep the missionaries supplied. The ministers of the church uh, are not in good condition at times. And it can't be done all because of unbelief. But real faith is a faith that trusts God. This man came to Jesus and he said he wanted to follow or he wanted Jesus to help him. And I want to remind you uh, of, this, of another man that came to Jesus and said that he wanted to follow him. And he said, Lord, I want to be your disciple and I'll be right there with you. I want to get in the boat and I want to go with you. And he said, but, but, I have to first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, no, come and follow me and let the dead bury their dead. And we think, oh, what a terrible thing for Jesus to say. Doesn't he have enough compassion to let the poor guy go and bury his father? But that's not even what the the scripture means. His father wasn't even dead. When he talked about burying his father, he meant, I need to wait till he dies, then I'll bury him and I'll have his inheritance, and then I'll come and follow you. 
Because then I'll have everything I need. I'll be all set up. I'll have the money in the bank. Everything's there for me to fall back on. And Jesus did not want those kinds of disciples. Those disciples fall out when they can't see any longer. So they don't have enough faith to follow him. Now he told his disciples, I'm going to send you out without money. Don't take anything with you. Depend upon the people that you minister to to take care of your needs. In other words, he says, step out on faith and I will take care of you. So you see the disciples are down in the valley. They're short on faith. Jesus was not with them and the provision was not easily visible. So they faltered in their faith when the going got tough. Now let's look at it a little bit further at this deficient faith. This man came to Jesus... He took his boy to the disciples. They couldn't cast the demon out. That's what he told Jesus. Now in verse 17, Jesus said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Jesus said, not only are you faithless, but you are perverse. It's an interesting word. I'll tell you about it in just a moment. Commentators disagree about who Jesus was talking to. Did he mean just the crowd? Or was he also talking to the disciples when he said, you are faithless and perverse? I tend to think that he's talking to both of them. Perverse is a word that means twisted or contorted. It means somebody who doesn't think straight. People that don't have any view towards the consequences of their sin. Have no view... And if you want to take sin out of it, then just say they don't have any idea of the consequences of their actions. So they live like many people in America today. We live in a a time of instant gratification without regard to how our uh, actions affect those who come after us. So our country has a mountain of debt. It keeps on being pushed to future generations. Eventually the debt will become so huge that we can't rob Peter anymore to pay Paul. And then it's all going to come crashing down. Now the government, I'm not making this a political speech, I'm just throwing some things in here for you. But the government on the other hand, they take and they put somebody like Bernie Madoff in jail for a Ponzi scheme, which they should well do, while the government runs the biggest Ponzi scheme of all. Borrowing money, all of our taxes to go and pay for something that... You know, just to keep things going, turning over dollars, just borrowing money and borrowing money from this fund, that fund to keep things going. But it's just typical of the American people and typical of Christians too because we've turned out to be selfish. And we have the same types of selfishness that you find in the world. Now what it takes to get rid of all this is to get be, be plugged into the power source and forget about self and be willing to sacrifice self for the good of others. And isn't that what we learned in the 16th chapter? It's exactly what Jesus said. So I think that as Jesus says that, he found found a lot that was wrong with the people. But he also found much to complain about in his own disciples. And we can look over our church and our membership and Christians in this place and we can say the Lord has a lot to complain about with his own disciples. Now thirdly, I want you to look at the divine directive the divine directive. And this is a picture of disciplined faith. How did Jesus deal with the problem? Well, he told the disciples that they couldn't cast out the demon because of unbelief. 
Then he said something strange, very strange in verse 20. He followed that with, and look at this closely. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Now, if you are thinking, and you read the Bible, you have to see something very, very strange in that response. Now, their unbelief, he said, is an example of little or no faith. And then he turns around and says, all you really need is a little faith. So how do you, how do you, how do you put those two together? How can you be a person of little faith when all you need is a little faith? Well, Jesus complains about their faith. And it's not really an appeal to the amount of faith that they have. It's more an appeal to the quality of the faith that they have. I'd like you to turn back to chapter 13, if you would. And we'll look at a parable that Jesus told when he talked about the kingdom. And here, perhaps you'll remember, when we studied the 13th chapter, we talked about the mustard seed. And in chapter 13, verse number 31, Matthew 13, 31, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. The mustard seed is a very small seed. In fact, that's the smallest seed that the Jews use in agriculture. And yet, when it grows... It becomes the largest of herbs, even growing to the size of a tree, getting so large that birds come and build nests in the branches of the mustard tree or this mustard bush. Jesus said, well, if you have faith like that, if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Ever thought about that? What did Jesus mean when he said you could move mountains? And in fact... This passage of scripture is often taught wrongly. So don't beat me up after the service when you hear what I have to say. What did he actually mean? He did not mean this. He did not mean that you could go over and stand at the base of Mount St. Helena and say, Mountain, I'm tired of crossing you. Highway 29, it's too curvy. It's just a big headache to get from here to, where do you go? Middletown, I think, on the other side. It's just too curvy. So mountain, you get up, and I'm going to cast you into the sea. And we don't care what happens to the people in Bodega Bay, but they get get St. Helena Mountain, Mount St. Helena. He doesn't mean that. Jesus is actually using hyperbole here. And what he meant was that God makes it possible for you to do all things that are spiritually beneficial in his power. It's essentially the same as what I quoted earlier when Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what he means is that God is sufficient. God is totally sufficient for everything. That there is no evil that can overcome you. You are protected by God and his power is sufficient for everything that you need. Nothing is left for you. God supplies it all. Now, here is... The key to it, though, you must be plugged in to the power source. It only takes a little bit of faith when you're plugged into the power source. You have to be in the right source to get things done. 
And faith is what brings us into contact with the Lord who has the power. Now, don't be confused about it. It's not the faith that has the power. It's the one that you have your faith in. He's the one that has the power. It's the object of faith that has the power. And faith is the thing that puts you in contact with God. And it's the only thing that puts you in contact with God. You can't substitute anything else for it. Faith makes you in contact with God. Now what had happened with the disciples is that their faith was mixed faith. Faith was mixed with their ability, some of God's ability. And so they tried to conquer their problem with too many connections. How many ever heard of dirty electricity? You ever heard of dirty electricity? Okay, some of you have. Gary's kind of an engineer in those kind of things too, I think. So dirty electricity. I'm going to do my best to explain it to you. Probably be best if I had somebody from Sebastopol here to explain it to you. But I'm going to do my best to talk to you about dirty electricity. Now this is one form of it. And there's different ways that the term is used. Let's start with clean electricity. What's clean electricity? Well, clean electricity is electric or the... the, the Uh, electric supply that remains confined in the electric lines and goes directly to the power source in your home or in your appliances or whatever. But dirty electricity is electricity that gets outside of the channel. Now that's electricity that you find in the magnetic field of electronic devices like computers or as they say in Sebastopol, your cell phones, and they're fighting with PG&E over the smart meters and their dirty electricity that they emit. That's dirty electricity. Now, if we wanted to compare that to faith, the disciples had a dirty faith. They had a mixture of faith. They had faith that was going outside of the channel where it's supposed to run. And when it gets outside of the channel, it's not good. It's harmful to you. The faith has to stay in the right channel, be used in the right way. You have to stick to the power source, which is Jesus Christ, and you must depend totally, wholly upon him. You have to be completely dependent upon him. And the Bible says that when you are in that way, when you're in that channel, that nothing is impossible to you. When you get outside of the channel, nothing is possible to you. So what does Jesus say they need? They need prayer and they need fasting. And that's, uh, prayer is the proof of where the dependence is. Fasting is the discipline to push everything else aside and to concentrate only on the power of God. Now today I'm not going to give you a lesson about fasting. If you, if you want to know more about that, go back to messages 46 and 47 on Matthew 6, 16 through 18 entitled Righteous Religion and Personal Devotion. So I'm not going to talk about fasting, but I do want to talk to you for a minute about prayer. And I want to talk to you about the importance of prayer. Prayer is needed on a daily basis. Prayer bolsters your faith. Prayer shows that you have faith, that you're depending on that right power source. Now, many times you'll talk to new Christians, and at first they are just so excited and they're so active in their prayer life. And they're excited because they've seen prayer do things that they've never experienced before. They've never had an experience with prayer. Even some may think that they do. But the real truth of the matter is... You can't have any connection with God in prayer unless you know Jesus Christ. So you can pray all you want to if you're not saved and you don't have a connection to God. 
Prayer is a connection to God, but it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So you get connected to God in your prayers when you have faith in him and you feel close to him, you have comfort in him, you realize that God is working. And so you take people that start out with a little bit of faith and they keep praying and keep praying and what happens? Faith keeps increasing. Faith increases. So that small mustard seed of faith grows into a big tree of faith that confidently goes everywhere. And so then we have people in the church that are exercising it properly that are no longer people of little faith. They have become people of great faith. And so when you say, you know, we've got a problem, they say, no, there's not a problem. Let's just pray about it. God knows the answer to our problems. God knows how to solve everything. Just pray about it. Have faith in him. So they say, let's go pray about that. And these are people that have learned about persistence in their prayers. They don't give up. They know James who said, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now apparently, these disciples did not pray about it. And if they tried, they'd given up too soon. And I can promise you that if they had prayed in the same way that Jesus did when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration... And if you remember, when he went up there, that's the first thing that he did. He was involved in prayer so long that the disciples fell asleep. And if they had been praying the way that Jesus prayed, there would be no demon safe around them. Why, they'd say, demon, come out. And every demon for 25 miles around would come out too. Because they have faith and it's in the right power supply. But sadly, that's not the case with most Christians, is it? Look what Jesus did in verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Jesus spoke, and the devil came out. Do you know why the devil came out when Jesus spoke? Very simple reason. They know him. They know who he is. And in Mark 1.24, Jesus went into the synagogue and just his presence there, a demon saw him coming. And you know what the demon said? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And now I want you to notice something else. Demons also know Christians that are working in the power of God. Let me show you what happens when they're not. In Acts 19, there's a story about the Apostle Paul and the Apostles casting out demons. And there were some Jews there, and they said, you know, I think we can cast out demons too. And so they spoke to a demon. They said, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And they meant, come out of him, demon. And the demon just kind of looked up and said, well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know. Who are you? And that demon jumped out of that fella and just beat the living daylights out of those guys. And you know what I think a lot of times? I think that there are Christians in our church, they're trying to defeat the devil in some way or another, and they they yell back at the devil when they got a problem. The devil says, and just who are you again? Because see, they don't see Jesus in them. They don't see the power of God in them. They don't see somebody who has put all of his faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. Who are you? You, 
But the demons know Jesus and his followers that are dependent upon his power. The devil knows who they are, and the devil doesn't stick around. And that's why the word of God says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How many of you have experienced resisting the devil, and he flees from you? You don't have to raise your hand, but I'll tell you this, that if you're not living in the power of God, and you don't have faith, and your Christian life is not every day dependent upon God, then you can talk all you want to about resisting the devil, but you don't. And you know how I know you don't? You're not going to like it. Because I see you. I read what you write. I see what you say on Facebook. I, get, I have ways. I have means. I know you're not resisting the devil. I can, I can look at your personal parents and tell you many times you're not resisting the devil. You do what you want and you do when you want, when you want to do it. So you see, folks, what we need is we need the power of God. We need faith. And this church is not going to get going until the people of this church stand up, sit up, do something and say, we are going to trust in God and we are going to do what we're supposed to do, live like we're supposed to live, act like we're supposed to act, look like we're supposed to look, and then God will give us the power that we need. Let's don't sit around and play church all the time. Let's have faith in God that he'll do what he says that he will do. I don't want dirty faith, do you? I don't want dirty faith. I want faith in Jesus Christ who guides me every single day of the week. And you know something? I'm not setting myself up here and saying I do it. That I'm perfect. And here's a preacher up there that ever has a thing wrong in his life. Because you know better than that. I fight the devil on a daily basis. I'm as human as all of you are. But I also have the same power supply that all of you have. And we can all use it together. And we can all be effective together. And we can all fight this thing together if we'll just do it. Give ourselves to God. Have the faith that we need to have. Depend upon him. And he'll take us where we want to go. And where we want to go, really, when you're in the power of God and you're praying like you should, where you want to go is where he wants to go. And that's why you get there. You're in agreement with God. You're both going the way you want to go. So we need faith in the valley. We can have faith on the mountain, but we need faith in the valley. You need faith when it seems that God is far, far away from you. And when you have that kind of faith, you know what to discover? You discover... God is not far, far away at all. But God is actually in the next prayer that you pray. He's as close as that. The next prayer that you pray, God is there. So what happened? Satan's not safe around you. Nothing, nobody's safe around you that has anything to do with the devil. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. That's a promise from the word of God. So what do you have to have to have the power of God? dependent faith, faith that's not deficient, faith that is always shored up, faith that's always plugged in to the right power supply. You need a disciplined faith. And so you have to take the right steps to get to God. Pray to him with persistence and with confidence. Have faith in the God that does the impossible. Because here's, again, there's so many lessons to learn here. We just, I could talk to you all day. I know you don't want to hear it, but I'm going to, I could. I could have talked to you about this all day. But, but listen, uh, God does the impossible, and you can do the impossible, because the only way that God works in here is through you. God works through you. He works through his people. He doesn't just, just 
all of a sudden do some great miraculous thing and the heavens open and stuff falls out of the sky for whatever you need. He doesn't do that. He works through his people. And so in order to get things done, his people have to be where he wants them to be. This is not complicated stuff. It's not really complicated. You know, you, know, you think, well, you know, he, he says, uses big words a lot of times. That I don't, this is not big words. These aren't big words. This is pretty simple stuff. You can sit on the front row right there and you can get all of I had to say today without any problem whatsoever. Have faith in the God who does the impossible. He works through you. He says, Jesus says, nothing shall be impossible to you. Faith is the grain of a mustard seed, just a little bitty thing if it's plugged into the right source. That's where you need to be, folks. Plugged in always to the right source. Plug into God's power by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lesson that we learned from your word. And I ask you, Lord, that that, that what I've said today, although feeble and could be said in so many better ways, so many truths that can be expressed in so many better ways than I can say them, just open up people's hearts to the power of the Holy Spirit. Help them to understand where they need to make a change in order to have the power of God. And it's not difficult for us to find out. It's all outlined in your word. And I pray that every day this is what we would do. Lean more on your power and less on our own. In fact, none on our own. Put all of our confidence in you. Speak to hearts today. Speak to Christians that need to be revived and strengthened and to have power in their lives again. Speak to those who don't know you as Savior. The only way they can connect to you is through Jesus Christ. Lord, help them to have faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.